Hello, it's Friday, October the 6th, and you're listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the Stanford University campus, Jeremy Carl. He's a Hoover Research Fellow who studies and writes about energy policy. He's also the co-author of a book whose title is Keeping the Lights On in America's Nuclear Power Plants. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to go nuclear. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Jeremy, if you go to the WhiteHouse.gov website and you click on to what's called an America First Energy Plan, and you read through the mission statement, you get to the penultimate sentence in the statement, and here's what it says. Quote, a brighter future depends on energy policies that stimulate our economy, ensure our security, and protect our health. Does that include nuclear energy? Well, I think from a White House perspective, it definitely does. And um, it's, it's been an area of focus and actually kind of an interesting thing is that nuclear, for all of its its bipartisan critics, has a lot of bipartisan supporters more than other uh, forms of energy. And if you look at the kind of Democratic-Republican gap, and in fact, uh, White House and Inhofe, but the senators, uh, White, White House being a liberal Democrat and Inhofe being a conservative Republican from Oklahoma, have kind of joked that this is the one energy thing that they agree on, is that we need to have nuclear as part of a, a energy strategy for the U.S. Right. Before we dig deeper into this, uh, explain for the listeners the difference between green energy and clean energy. <laughs> fair, fair question. So um, I'd say, you know, it, it depends on how you want to pers- uh, kind of define it, I suppose. They're, they're not sort of strictly defined terms, but I would say green energy um, more broadly tends to be um, the, the sorts of energy that, that green groups like, I think, in probably the way that you're using it. And that means basically wind and solar, maybe some geothermal, maybe certain types of small hydro into it. Um, that is distinct from what we might think of as really clean energy, which would also include, to to a very significant degree, um, two forms of energy in particular that have a lot um, bigger footprint still than any of those that I just mentioned globally, um, and those are large hydro, and then in particular nuclear. Nuclear still provides 20% of U.S. electricity, even as we have not built new plants, uh, frankly, here in, in at least a few decades. Um, and so that's something that people don't really realize. And and the reason why that's clean is it is emissions-free, um, and it uh, it generally also has, frankly, a much smaller geographic footprint in the case of nuclear than uh, than fossil or, or really than any of the renewables as well. Okay. Part of what I enjoy about doing this podcast is I get to learn. And I learned a lot about nuclear energy in a short period of time. One thing which is an eye-opener, the last two nuclear power plants built in the United States were the Watts Bar Plant, which is about 50 miles north of Chattanooga, and the Riverbend plant, which is about 30 miles north of Baton Rouge. Um, Riverbend uh, was built in 1977, comes online in 1986. But Watts Bar, Jeremy, construction begins in 1973. Construction is completed in 1990. It doesn't begin commercial operation until 1996, and they're still trying to get the whole thing up and running. So what's the problem? Yeah, and I should add, um, because I've gotten this a lot as we've been talking to folks about uh, the book, um, I'm not here to sort of shill for nuclear. I'm not supported either directly or indirectly by folks in the nuclear industry. Um, in fact, I kind of uh, came to nuclear as uh, I'm certainly a person who writes about a lot of different subjects in energy, but from kind of asking myself a very different question, which was why in a time that we were really looking for clean energy, as, as you've described it, um, were we taking essentially in the U.S. Um, the largest form of emissions-free 
energy kind of off the table, where you've had uh, four reactors in the last four or five years shut down out of a total of uh, 60 different reactor sites in the U.S. Um, but, but to kind of get to your, your point specifically, what you just see is these are incredibly complicated projects often, right. especially today, especially with new regulations that come up from the NRC, that's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission all the time, given supply chains, which are very complex. And, and some of that's for good reason. I mean, he really, you don't want to have an, a nuclear accident. I mean, we've seen that certainly um, with old technology and, and sloppy usage in both um, right. Chernobyl and Japan. Um, but there's also probably some layers on there that aren't really necessary. And, and just the whole time it ends up taking, um, you know, is a real impediment to getting anything done. 40 years from beginning a construction to actual <laughs> operation. So there's, there's something wrong here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're seeing the same thing in Georgia and South Carolina now with, with the latest two nuclear plants that are being tried to be built where they're over budget, they're over time. And we've discovered how broken our nuclear supply chain is. Right. And that has a lot of national security implications, which I'd love to talk about at maybe some point a little bit later. Love to. So here's what you wrote in The Hill on August the 3rd. You wrote, quote, despite America's, despite nuclear power's cross-partisan support, you point out there's a 17-point um, separation between liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans on this issue, which is actually a smaller gap than on wind power, for sure. example. But here's what you wrote. <clears throat> uh, despite uh, nuclear power's cross-partisan support, America's nuclear capacity is shrinking. Five of our nation's 60 existing nuclear power plants have closed in just the past four years. At four other plants, planned capacity operates have been called off, which would have allowed the existing plants to produce more electricity. And an unprecedented 10 more existing plants have announced firm plans to prematurely shut down in the near future. I see a problem. Plants are shutting down. It takes 40 years to get one from, from, from getting off the boards to actually in operation. It looks like we're going to have a problem here. Well, we are. And I think the reason why that matters, I mean, you know, the, one could take an approach, and I think it's, it's a legitimate approach, of just saying, well, who cares? You know, we should just go with whatever is the cheapest. Mm -hmm. That ignores, uh, you know, a couple different uh, elements. One is um, emissions, and that doesn't just mean carbon emissions, which obviously folks have different views on whether that's something we should be really worried about or not. But um, certainly local pollutant emissions, which right. nobody's really disputing, have a lot of health effects. So you have that. But then I'd say even more than the environmental effects, there's also the national security effects. Mm -hmm. We actually have a lot more nuclear power plants in this country. It's called the Nuclear Navy. And we've got, I think, about 120 different nuclear reactors that are on these different uh, nuclear-powered ships from submarines to aircraft carriers. And they give us tremendous... Um, capability that we would not have if we just had a fossil-generated fleet. It's the same reason that, that Winston Churchill switched the British over from coal to oil in the early part of the 20th century. We're talking about giving that up. We're talking about giving up our lead in nonproliferation. Um, and so it's there's a lot of other things besides just cheap electricity that we're giving up if we uh, kind of cut nuclear out of the mix. Now, you're talking national security. Is this what Rick Perry has in mind when he used the term fuel security, or is that a different creature? Well, that's that's another element of national security. I mean, I think he's talking about a slightly different thing, which is um, with, with some of these issues, um, we've been fortunate recently to have uh, a significant find in the hydraulic fracturing revolution that has meant that we are no longer having to import natural gas, but we're going to become an exporter. But that doesn't last forever. Um, Kind of A, just having fuel diversity inherently and, and source diversity inherently has some security val values. But B, 
um, we get out of the business maybe of having to uh, import in certain types of fossil energy down the road. So you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Now, Rick Perry is the former governor of Texas, and he is now the U.S. Energy Secretary, and he came out with a rule last week. What was that rule, Jeremy? Well, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but let me but because how does it's, it pertain to nuclear? it's because it's you know it'll bore everybody to tears. But but the the kind of upshot of what it does is it subsidizes coal and nuclear mm-hmm. at the expense of some of these other things, and there are reasons for that. Again, I mean, I think the the legitimate reasons for that, and and some of the ones that he cited are particularly also about grid stability and the role that that what's so called baseload power that that is provided by uh, coal and nuclear that is not provided by, say, a wind or a solar plant that is um, kind of on when the wind blows or sun shines, but not mm-hmm. otherwise. So that that was part of the thinking. There's obviously a piece of this, I think, particularly on the coal side, that is just a political piece, um, because Donald Trump has made a lot of promises very visibly to the the uh, the coal community, and right. he wants to be seen as at least acting on those to some degree. Right. But I think there's also some real substantive things there. And in fact, something very similar to um, what this rule was, was actually something we suggested in our book as a way for the federal government to <clears throat> have some role in stabilizing this market. Because there's, again, there's a feeling, and I'm, I mean, I'm a free marketeer by, by you know, <laughs> a pretty strong free market here uh, by background. Um, But I think it's important to note that electricity in the United States hasn't been a free market. It isn't a free market, and it has no prospects of ever being a free market. We just need to be honest about that. It has a, for a variety of reasons, some of which are quite good reasons, um, all sorts of different regulations attached to it. Um, It's very hard to see how in the near term those are going to go away. And so when you start with that background, then it becomes a question of what are the goals that you're trying to get to? And nuclear, I think, does uh, address some of those goals in a very fundamental way. All right. If you were to put your book in front of Secretary Perry and you were to highlight sections, earmark sections, what would you direct him to? <sighs> That's a good question. I think I think part of it is um, is really looking at just what I, what I said, which is he's now done, mm-hmm. which is that there needs to be some explicit understanding for FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that there is a value for um, the sorts of services that nuclear provides, and it needs to be part of the mix. He needs to understand that if we lose our nuclear capability, it has a lot of um, implications beyond just the power system and, and you know, sort of act ac- accordingly. He needs to understand the role, and this is very particularly relevant right now with what we're dealing with Iran and North Korea and nuclear proliferation. Now, certainly, to some extent, particularly the North Korean case, shows that we can't be perfect um, arbiters of, of the proliferation regime regardless. But if we get out of this, the two big players in the international nuclear regime are Russia and China, and they do not necessarily have our interests at heart as far as nuclear non-proliferation goes. And we have been able to have some leverage over non, on non-proliferation on the nuclear weapons side because of our expertise and technology that people wanted on the nuclear power side, even though those two technologies are quite distinct. And there's, there's some myths, you know, that people have a notion. There, there's no way to turn a nuclear power plant into a nuclear bomb, even if you had a, a meltdown. That's just not a, right. a scenario. But but there's enough linkages in there technologically that, that um, you know, there's, there's some advantages there. So I think those would all be things that I'd highlight. And also the need that we really need to act on this now because of these 40-year, you know, 30-year time frames you're talking about. 
anything that you do right now is it's going to take a while even to show up as it is. Um, honestly, we should have been doing this 10, 15, 20 years ago. China is building right now something like 20, 21 reactors, and it sells reactors. It sells reactors to the United Kingdom, sure. Argentina, Pakistan, something which maybe we're not happy about. Right. Why doesn't the United States export nuclear reactors? Well, we've just we've just lost the domestic capability of doing it. Our our firms have have sort of gone out of business, or they were sold. In the case of Westinghouse, which then went bankrupt, and part of the reason that Westinghouse went bankrupt was working on this kind of disastrous uh, cost overrun down in in Georgia. Right. Um, but so we, we've we've lost that technology now. There's there's but that sort of overstates what we lost. There's, there's sort of the contractor that puts it all together, and that's a sort of Westinghouse. Mm-hmm. But there's also 600 or 700 kind of subcontractor type, you know, who may do high-strength steel or concrete or whatever. We still do have capability of that uh, domestically. Mm-hmm. But we're, we, it's, it's eroded over 30 years of not really having a serious policy in this area. And so China has happily stepped into the mix. And, and you know, again, they're, they're building this stuff. They, they turned on, I believe, five or six last year. So it's not as if nuclear is kind of going the way of the dodo everywhere. And I'm right. saying, hey, let's throw billions of dollars at this thing that isn't working. It's actually working in some very important things. U- UAE is building a very large nuclear plant uh, right now. But um, it's not working here. And we need to look at why. So Perry proposes his plan, and uh, Lickety Split, the B word is dropped on him, the B word for bailout. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, Jeremy, from your perspective, when you look at the left and how it pushes back against nuclear energy in this day and age, if this had been 34 years ago, Jackson Brown holds a concert. <laughs> a bunch of young people are screaming, no nukes, and so forth. But time has passed since then. Yeah. Uh, your column suggests that people maybe are a little not as up in arms about nuclear energy. It's been a long time since uh, Three Mile Island, the China right. Syndrome. Um, the closest, I guess, we have to a conversation about nuclear energy would be The Simpsons and Homer Simpson. Right. That's a cartoon, ultimately. But uh, honestly, that's probably played a role over the years, right? right. I mean, that's 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 my childhood image of a nuclear power plant, right? Is is Homer Simpson, which is not exactly the the image of competence and uh, respect. Right. So you see on the one hand, you see the right saying nuclear energy is part of the clean port green portfolio of uh, the clean portfolio. It's what's yeah. the majority of clean energy in the country, right? Sure. Well, I think it's just been passed in aggregate by everything else okay. combined, but it's it's still Huge. Right. And it's about 20% of electricity right. overall, right? Which, again, out of 60 sites in the entire country, you're generating right. that. So it's, it's, you know. So the right push is saying that, look, it's a necessary component, but how does the p- left push against it? Well, the left is really conflicted. And there are some folks on the left um, and even folks, a, a lot of folks in the climate community who are not necessarily friends of, of a lot of people on the right who've actually um, have pushed for uh, nuclear energy. Um, I, I always kind of say uh, when I'm talking to folks about climate on the left, it's a really good indication to me of how serious they are. Anybody who says that they're really, really freaked out about climate change, mm-hmm. but they're strongly against nuclear, I kind of have to question that. Now, for me, you know, I'm pretty dovish by conservative standards on the issue of, of climate. I do think it's an issue that we should be addressing, but I'm sort of a, a climate moderate, uh, climate realist, for lack of a better term. And that's kind of how I approach nuclear. I'm sort of a realist, moderate. I, I'm not suggesting that you know we need to go triple our capacity or anything like that. I'm saying I think it has a role, and it's probably not a good uh, idea for it to go the way of the dodo. Um, it's surprising, however, un- unfortunately, the number of environmentalists who just kind of have this religious fervor against nuclear because 
you know, it's not pretty like a it's solar, uh, you know, solar panel or a wind turbine. It just it doesn't meet with kind of their notions of what clean should be. It's big. It's industrial. They don't like big and industrial. Um, so you have a lot of this kind of Greenpeace uh, crowd that sort of goes above and beyond in, ty- in kind of attacking nuclear. But again, I do think it's important to note that there is a significant and, and growing constituency even among the environmental left, and that to some degree is is uh, reflected by folks like Senator Whitehouse, who say, "Hey, nuclear has to have a place here because, yeah, I've got some of these other concerns, but we're really concerned about climate, and nuclear addresses carbon emissions in a pretty compelling way." Now, you like me follow California politics on a sort of painfully excruciating. <laughs> but there is no other way to follow California politics. It's kind of a masochistic exercise. I right. would not argue with that. Do you think in our lifetime we will see a California nuclear power plant built? Wow. Um, There's one nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon. Right? right, right, which is being scheduled to be shut down under this really, I mean, this really dubious process that's going to cost taxpayers a ton of money. Well, explain that for a second. Oh, gosh. Again, I mean, I don't want to bore people with all the details, but basically what, what happened is Jerry Brown and the environmentalists uh, got together and they cut a deal, which, which frankly, in my view, illegally cut out the actual ratepayers mm-hmm. and people like that, and it essentially preserved this fiction that we're going to cut down, we're going to cut out nuclear power here and we're going to replace it with zero carbon solar and wind. Now, there have been very, there's been very good work, including some of the folks done by my friends at a group called Environmental Progress, which is a pro-nuclear but, but lefty group that kind of show that this whole notion that you're going to be replacing nuclear with carbon-free energy is just a complete fallacy. It has no relationship to reality whatsoever, other than Jerry Brown's ability to put out a press release and have the media reliably regurgitate it. Um, so uh, that's, I think, our short term. In the long term, I think it depends on, I think probably ultimately climate will be the the tipping point. You know, how, how freaked out does the country get about it? Because again, it's very hard to see how we really um, get to a place where we, we dramatically, dramatically reduce our carbon emissions in the way that some of the folks on the left would like to without nuclear as a piece of it. Right. Um, if you don't think the climate's going to be a big uh, issue, then I could I can easily see California just saying, "Hey, we're not going to do this." Um, but uh, I still think you'll you'll have it elsewhere where the politics are not quite as ridiculous as California's. So, if California takes nuclear energy out of the equation, this is a state of almost forty million people, right, and growing. It's on a path to fifty million one day, right. It's a state with a lot of energy consumption. These sure. computers in Silicon Valley chew up a lot of electricity. And the state learned a very hard lesson in the last decade that when you take a false step or two in energy policy, boom, out go the lights. Yeah. So how how's California, Jeremy, going to grow as a society, continue to use energy, but take this component out? Where does, where does it take up the slack? Well, I mean, I think part of it, unfortunately, is, and, and you see this, is we have a lot higher energy prices than our neighbors. I mean, even our, our progressive lefty neighbors off in Oregon and Washington, and to some degree that's because of cheap hydro, but, right. but to some degree it's just because they're not quite as ridiculous as California. California about their approach to all things energy. And I think where things are going to get interesting is we have all these these bills that have, you know, various ones of them have become laws now that kind of are, are pointing us to a zero emissions California future in a few decades from now, which is, is not actually that long in the context of electricity planning, as we discussed. It's really hard for me to see how we get there in any way that's even I mean, if it's even possible, I think that's a separate question, but certainly that's vaguely affordable without 
baseload zero carbon. We're not making new big hydro. I mean, that doesn't, <laughs> they're not big new uh, rivers that we can just <laughs> dam to do that, right? Like that's, right. that, that's kind of there. So um, uh, if you want to increase your zero carbon baseload, you're basically looking at nuclear. Hard for me to see, just as hard for me to see it being built in the short term, but it's also hard for me to see how we get to this zero carbon kind of number that the left is pushing without doing that. So it's going to be an interesting tension to watch how things will develop in this state. Definitely. So so Rick Perry has not really caught a lot of flack as energy secretary. Maybe I'm not paying attention, but in terms of the various people in the spotlight in the Trump administration, it seems he's been kind of out of it. But somebody who is in the spotlight and seems to be public enemy number one to a lot of Trump critics is a gentleman named Scott Pruitt. Jeremy, who is Scott Pruitt? Well, Scott is the, the uh, commissioner of the EPA and uh, this is the Environmental Protection Agency. And, right. Uh, he was Before that, he was the attorney general of Oklahoma and had sued the EPA a lot. And it's interesting because, and we were talking about this a little bit uh, offline, but he's kind of getting it from the right and the left. I think um, the left sort of thing, Scott Pruitt is, uh, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon. He's he's whatever. I mean, he's this this, this he's, kind of demon figure for he them. Has, he has a mission to take away every environmental standard. Right. right. And I think the right, and, I, and I've certainly talked to plenty of these folks, I mean, some of the really hardcore folks just think, and I, I mean, oh, he's a squish. He's not really going to do anything to upset the apple cart. He's looking at running for governor or senator in Oklahoma in X years, and he just wants to, you know, do a little virtue signaling to folks on the right and, and build his profile. He's not really going to rock the boat. He's not really going to make the changes we desperately need. Um the folks I know who've worked with Pruitt actually say he is not, and I don't know him personally, but say he's not an ideologue. He's a smart guy. He's professional. Um, but he's sort of sitting in between these two very, very angry forces uh, on either side of him, and he's really getting um, buffeted quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Your assessment of EPA. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit? <laughs> well, the right the right sees EPA as a regulatory model. Sure. Is the right correct or is the right overstating the case? Um, no, I think there's substantial EPA reform that, that needs to take place. I mean, I'm happy we have EPA. I think EPA serves a, a useful function. Um, I think the question ultimately is, and, and I think you know, responsible critics from the right of the EPA have always said this, is kind of what is the primary role? Is it a, a effectively lawmaking body because Congress has essentially abrogated its duties mm-hmm. In that regard, um, I, I don't think that's sort of the right thing for the EPA to be making these sorts of decisions that involve uh, often billions of dollars just kind of by some arbitrary bureaucratic rulemaking process. Um, so, so that's what I don't think the EPA should be doing. Um, it has a critical role in monitoring pollution, mm-hmm. in coming up with plans to address pollution. And Scott Pruitt kind of came in with this stated agenda that I actually thought was a really great conservative agenda, at least rhetorically, for what he wanted the EPA to do. But unfortunately, we haven't seen enough of that on the ground at this point, which is he sort of said, I want us to get out of this, you know, kind of morass of rulemaking. And I'm going to go look at all these Superfund sites that haven't been cleaned up in 30 or 40 years. And we're going to clean up way more than the Democrats did. Actually, that sort of thing is a great vision for what a conservative EPA could be doing. Um, you know, really focusing on clean air, clean water, cleaning up stuff where we know there's been toxicity in the past, and, and really focusing on that rather than on kind of this all-encompassing economic rulemaking. Right. Let's play a little political Jeopardy. She was George Bush, George W. Bush's first EPA head. 
let's see. Is that Whitman? Very good. Yeah. Christy Todd Whitman, yeah. formerly governor of New Jersey. Yeah. All right. He was George H.W. Bush's first EPA head. Uh, Bill Riley. Very good. And she was Ronald Reagan's second EPA head. Uh, Gorsuch. And Gorsuch, that's right. What do these people have in common? <laughs> uh, gosh, it's they're, they're, tri- they're Republicans. Trick question, exactly. They worked for Republican presidents, but Christy Todd Whitman Jeremy was, what, a very moderate Republican. A yeah. Moderate's moderate, especially on the environment. She went to painful legs to talk about being pro-environmental. And that's certainly true. Bill Riley, the same Bill way. Bill Riley was head of the World Wildlife Fund before he comes <laughs> over to EPA, but Ann Gorsuch. Yeah, well, and she was she was a, a hate figure for for certain uh, when she was EPA uh, heading the EPA, and that was a little bit before my time. I was a kid uh, when uh, Ann Gorsuch was heading the EPA, but I think it was sort of interesting. You know, she did have that role right. where she was kind of a not, not public enemy number one because we had James Watt and some other folks who uh, the left hated even more, but she was definitely a, a kind of hate figure on the left. That didn't really come up a lot in the Gorsuch confirmation hearings, and I was sort of surprised that we didn't hear even more. And it's not that it didn't come up, but we, we didn't hear more about his mom in that context. And I have no doubt that his mother's experience sort of colored his view of environmental rulemaking. And it'll be interesting to see whether he takes a real leadership role from the right in crafting, mm-hmm. um, and as a Coloradan, right, where he's very close to some of these things, crafting some some interesting conservative responses to things. Exactly. So Ann Gorsuch is the mother of Neil Gorsuch, the right. newest Supreme Court justice. So these things all kind of interlock in a funny way. Jeremy, if you go back to the White House website and you read a Donald Trump statement on the environment, it says, quote, President Trump will refocus the EPA on its essential mission of protecting our air and water. What does that mean, refocus? That's a very clever word. Well, and I, I think that's it's kind of what I was getting at, which is you really you really focus on, hey, you know, there's somebody who's dumped all this affluent in uh, a river and we or a lake, and we know that lake is polluted. Um, and we're not we're not arguing about whether somebody's pond in their backyard is really a lake, mm-hmm. but you know we kind of pick things that are really tangible. We pick these Superfund sites, which everybody acknowledges. Hey, they they were polluted by something toxic of some kind, and we really focus the agency on what can we do on the ground to clean up these sites. And, and again, Trump as a developer, as a guy who builds things, as a guy who runs projects essentially for a living, that's the sort of thing that I think would fit really well with his brand and with his expertise to, to put in there. And so I think, um, again, kind of getting away from this sort of all economy rulemaking, particularly on issues like climate, where I just don't think you want the EPA running that um, decision. I think it needs to be, uh, you know, for better or for worse, something that comes out of Congress and Congress needs to agree to it. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately right now I haven't seen a lot of actual evidence that we're, we're doing, um, you know, something dramatic and new on the, on, the, on the actual implementation front. And it's hard for me to know as whether it's just because staff have been really slow getting in place or whether this is just rhetoric or what it is. But I think if, if the reality matches up to that rhetoric, it would actually be a really appealing vision for a conservative EPA. So if you go back to 1970 and look up the original Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon is the person who gifted us the EPA, and he right. did it in what was called Reorganization Plan 3. I don't know how they come up with the titles for these things, but Reorganization Plan, it sounds Soviet, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. Reorganization Plan 3, which calls for the creation of EPA, and he said, quote, the present governmental structure for dealing with environmental pollution often defies effective and concerted action. So that is 47 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, it's—I uh, mean, again, it's just like m- many of these things that have sort of 
th things in government kind of tend to metastasize on their own. And again, I, I'm not I'm not an EPA basher per se. I mean, I think a lot of the things EPA does are are kind of misguided or overwrought. But there's a really important role for the federal government, I think, in in environmental protection and in seeing that the standards that Congress is passing ideally are enforced, and then we implement appropriate solutions. But the problem is things have just gotten, you know, I think out of control and out of touch with with reality. And you see this with things like Waters of the U.S. rule um, and and uh, the EPA kind of becoming some super regulatory body on climate. And I just don't think that that's really what the EPA should be here for. All right, let's go back to some uh, broader stroke energy questions. Is Trump going to pull us out of the Paris Accord? Uh, great question. Mm. I think at this point, my guess would be yes, yes, simply because he has, he's already taken that political hit. And so I think if he goes back on it, it's not like the left is suddenly going to love him. And a lot of the people on the right who were celebrating that um, are going to kind of be of the view that, you know, then they're going to be really annoyed. Having said all that, I think, again, Trump's a deal maker. I don't think he really cares about the Paris Accord one way or another. And frankly, he shouldn't because it doesn't make a difference one way or another. That's one of the reasons it's so puzzling to me and other folks who kind of really understand it, that it's it's become such a flashpoint issue because practically on the ground, it's just not really clear that... Why, why doesn't it make a difference? Well, it's pretty much all voluntary. That's I mean, that's the, that's the quick answer. Um, I mean, it was essentially something that everybody could sign up for and, and feel, you know, say that they're going to do something and feel good about it, but right. whether they actually did anything was kind of up to them. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly oversimplifying, but... Sort of like Kyoto. Yeah, but even more voluntary, right. I mean, almost. And it's funny, I, and when I say that, this is not sort of the, the right-wing conspiracy view of what that theory, uh, the treaty does. I think a lot of folks on the left would say the exact same thing. And I know that some of the folks who were trying to talk President Trump into st staying in Paris were basically saying, hey, look, this doesn't do anything. Um, interesting aside there, I, I heard, and this is not, uh, this is greater than hearsay, but it's not firsthand knowledge, that one of the reasons why uh, Trump, in fact, decided to stay in uh, or to, to get out at least preliminarily is because the elimination was, uh, the administration was so uh, alarmed, and I think quite rightly, with some of the lawless judicial actions that had been taken on immigration, that it was also really clear that the judiciary just didn't have the power to do certain things, but just went ahead and did them anyway, right. that they began saying, well, you know, it's really clear that this is voluntary, but what if we get some crazy judge who's just going to say, actually, you know, voluntary means mandatory, right. and we're going to be stuck in the same place. So in some ways, liberal overreach on one issue kind of uh, cascaded out and, and hurt them on another issue. So I think he'll go out of it. But again, he's a, he's a deal maker, and I think he doesn't care that much about this. And so if it gets him something that he likes more to, to throw this back in, I could see him doing it. Okay. Um, exploration, oil, and more, et cetera. Um, Murkowski is pushing really hard for this. Um, Murkowski, Mur Senator Murkowski from Alaska being the, uh, the, the, the Republican head of the Senate Energy Committee. Right. She's been pushing on this for a while. Uh, Murkowski controls a lot of things that Democrats care about. They would like to work with her on a lot of uh, other issues. And in fact, you've seen her sort of be one of the people who's thrown a monkey wrench in the works on things like Obamacare repeal right. and other things. So she's a very... Um, She's somebody who the Democrats don't want to hugely antagonize. Right. That having been said, Anwar is kind of a, um, uh, you know, it's one of these religious tests almost for the Democrats. And so it's hard for me to see them really going on with anything that would directly implicate 
um, us doing something in Anwar. But I think pretty much anything but Anwar, I think we'll see some more exploration and production possibilities coming out of Alaska. So you should keep an eye on the budget process <clears throat> as it continues down the road because the budget process is tied into tax reform in at least two ways. Number one, revenue, but secondly, the buying of Republican votes. <laughs> and look very closely in that budget document to see what, if anything, is written in Anwar. I would almost bet my last dollar that there's going to be some Anwar clause in there. And I think you're right, and I think the Democrats will scream bloody murder about it, and the, and the question is what, you know, again, it's... it's Democrats also have lots of priorities. They have to decide whether they think Anwar is really such a big priority for them that they're willing to, to shoot themselves in the foot for a bunch of other things. I don't okay. know. And offshore oil exploration. Uh, going to happen. I mean, it's, I think it'll continue to increase. I don't think it's going to happen in some of these states that are less enthusiastic about <clears throat> the idea period. In other words, I don't think the Trump administration in general will... I mean, rhetorically, they've made some moves to maybe do that, but I don't right. think just functionally when, when it comes down to drill bits going into the ground somewhere, I don't think we're going to, say, see massive new out offshore exploration out off, say, the coast of California. Mm -hmm. Just not going to happen. Um, but I do think you'll see it in places where there's more receptivity to it. I think the big, the kind of devil in the details here is we've got a cheap uh, global uh, oil market right now, and we've got a lot of signs of a global oil glut. And, uh, you know, in that sort of price environment, uh, offshore, which tends to be more expensive, has a hard time competing. Okay, fracking. Uh, holy grail <laughs> uh, of American energy. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty much of an unrestrained uh, fracking enthusiast. Um, it's, it's essentially, again, it's taken us from a position of when we had $12 natural gas before the fracking revolution to now where we have $3 natural gas. As far as the eye can see, it's put huge amounts of money into our pocketbooks as Americans, and we don't even realize all the ways that it's, it's done that. But it's, you know, from everything from cheaper manufacturing to lower energy bills. Um, it's, it's also, you know, kind of ironically given the, the much of the left's demonizing of it, the biggest thing it did. I mean, there, there's nothing that has contributed to the shutdown of coal plants more than hydraulic fracturing and cheap natural gas, right. which was just a better competitor. Um, so I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, I think we're going to continue to see more of it, mm -hmm. um, both nationally, but I think even increasingly globally, although it's certainly the U.S. has the most favorable combination of geology and rules for it. And what about coal? If you go back to that White House first America First Energy Plan, you see the words clean coal included yeah. in that document. Uh, we're going to need some technological breakthroughs if we're going to get to really clean coal. And I don't mean, I mean, we know kind of how in theory to, um, sequester carbon, which is, again, not from a perspective that that's the, what this White House is going to require. But I think in the grand scheme, when you look at this whole morass of energy regulation state by state, for coal to really gain a lot of share, it's going to have to emit a lot less carbon one way or another than what it's doing right now in the vast majority of states. I mean, the states that they don't really care about carbon emission, they already have a lot of coal. And for the most part, it's not going away. But if it wants to gain any share, that's what it would have to do. Um, we are not there in terms of a uh, sustainable technology pathway, but I think I'm probably more optimistic than a lot of folks because somebody who, not in the short term, but there's a huge amount of money for whoever could actually figure out how to do this, whether it's through some of the pathways that we're doing right now or something else. 
if you could figure out how to really utilize coal in a way that would make even fairly grumpy but not totally ridiculous greens satisfied, right. all of a sudden you have this incredibly abundant source of energy and you can use it uh, a lot. If you don't kind of pay attention to the pollution end, it's just self-limiting. And we've seen this in China and India, where in China already they're, you know, shutting down every coal plant near Beijing and saying hi because of the contributions, not so much to global warming, but to local pollution. Okay, we're almost out of categories. Renewables. Uh, Going to continue to grow. And I think for folks like me, I mean, always good to kind of look back where you, um, you miss things. Uh, I would not have anticipated the level of price drop and the level of growth that we've seen. It's not that I, and I've always, it's not that I'm like been a big renewable skeptic, but I just, um, I, w- I would have described myself as a mild optimist. I think we have to be, um, and I think this is great, you know, from, from my perspective, the, the prices of, of wind and in particular solar have gone way, way down to the point that they are competitive in certain, uh, again, the left likes to exaggerate this, but for certain types of activities, they, they are, um, price competitive. And so I think we're going to see real growth. The key that they will have to work in conjunction with to the point that they could become really predominant mainstream global energy sources is they have to be combined with serious long-term storage of some sort so that they're really on when you need them. Right now, um, that's not the case for the most part. You can do some clever things with predictive modeling and computer forecasting to kind of bring it up to 20, 30, maybe even 40% of a grid um, running off those types of intermittent sources. But to really go beyond that, you start causing the grid huge, huge headaches. Um, They need to be at a point where I turn the light on and I know I get power from those sources. They've got a ways to go there there yet. Okay, and lastly, nuclear. Um, I wish I were more optimistic in the short term, um, but I do think ultimately... If this really starts getting squeezed domestically even more dramatically, there are going to be people who are going to speak up in the national security community to to some extent they already are. Um, I think the fact that uh, the administration has stepped in for nuclear is is significant. Um, And I think globally we're going to continue to have um, some growth as well. I think probably um, American public opinion about climate change will have a lot to do with American public opinion about climate change combined with the military's uh, kind of concerns about nonproliferation and a nuclear navy. Some combination of, of how those two groups are feeling will determine the future of nuclear in this country. Final question. It's a dour question, but I feel I have to ask it given what's in the news. And that's America and energy and security and safety and protections in these really dangerous, complicated times. Jeremy, what should, what is the government doing to safeguard against, God forbid, somebody with the resources, the dimension to want to attack the electric grid of the United States. In other words, somebody who doesn't want to shoot a bunch of people to concert, but somebody who decides, I want to take down electric grids because in his crazed mind, electricity is evil. Or let's say a little dictator with a bad haircut across the ocean decides he wants to cripple our electricity grid. What should the government be doing right now to protect us against that kind of attack? Well, and and it's a great question, uh, Bill. And and the, the Unfortunately, the worrying thing is not enough. There are varying things that you can do to harden the grid against what's called EMP attacks, electromagnetic pulse. Uh, you hear about the guy with the bad haircut uh, out in, in uh, North Korea, uh, maybe being able to launch a sort of tactical nuclear uh, thing that would take out, um, take out the, the U.S. grid using that. 
Um, it's a concern. I think it's unfortunately humans are sort of crisis driven. And until we sort of have the crisis, I'm worried we won't deal with it enough. We've done some limited hardening of the grid, but not nearly enough. I would say it's, it's a hugely um, under-resourced thing given the level of catastrophe that happens when you don't have a grid. We're seeing this right now, by the way, in Puerto Rico, right. where they've lost 93% of their grid. Um, I think as, as of right now. And, you know, you're going to see what that looks like even more in a couple weeks, assuming that they don't get dramatic improvement in that situation. So, um, I mean, I'm not an expert in all the different technical things that you can do, but I do know grids are hardenable and it's not sort of a thing where it, it you know, triples the price of your electricity to do it. It's just a question of we need to spend several billion dollars to really do that. Um, because we are such an interconnected world with, with electricity and, ev and everything else that we need to make sure that we've got a reliable grid, and right now we don't. Very good. Jeremy Curl, thanks for the talk. Thanks so much, Bill. Pleasure to be on. Enjoyed it very much. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast exploring policy avenues available to America's 45th president. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, and if you wouldn't mind, tell your friends about us. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org, and while you're there, sign up for The Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Jeremy Carl and his Hoover colleagues to you every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds, and our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Jeremy Carl is on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at Jeremy Carl. That's Carl with a C. Carl 4. Carl 4, actually. <laughs> you spell it at Jeremy Carl 4. That's at J-E-R-E-M-Y-C-A-R-L-4. You can also find Jeremy and his fine political writings on the National Review Online website. Check him out. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.